Um, so today we start a new series on prayer. This morning, I want to talk about unanswered prayer. Uh, if you have a Bible, can you grab that? Even if it's on your phone, just grab your Bible and turn to the Gospel of Mark chapter 14. Um, have you ever found yourself in a situation where it's late at night, you're absolutely tired, and you have a friend who is an overzealous prayer warrior, right? No, you haven't. Okay, why would you, right? Uh, but let's just say you did. Let's just say you found yourself in that situation. Let's just say your friend's name is, well, Ben Hilson, okay? I, I've been there, okay? Um, it was a long day of ministry, and uh, that evening, Ben and I had a very long uh, counseling session with a few people. And uh, it was late at night. I hadn't eaten dinner, and I just wanted to go home when Ben said, hey, what do you think God's up to right now? Should we go inside and pray for the guy cleaning the building? And I'm like, Ben, it's 1045. I haven't eat, eaten. The only thing God wants us to do is go home and get some sleep. And Ben's like, I know, but I think God wants us to go inside and pray for the guy cleaning after hours. And before I can say anything, Ben's on his way into the building to pray for this guy. And I'm running after Ben. I'm like, Ben, hold up, like, wait up. Like, are we supposed to pray for this guy? I don't even know. Like, and to be honest with you guys, I had no faith to pray for this guy. And so Ben walks up to this guy. He's got his back turned to us. And Ben grabs him on the shoulder and absolutely scares the daylights out of this guy, right? Like talk about ministry. This guy almost has a heart attack. And uh, Ben asks him, hey, can we pray for you? And this guy just looks at us like he can't understand and shrugs his shoulders. And I think, great. He doesn't even understand English. Let's just cut our losses and go home. And, and right after, he takes his earphones in, which is why he couldn't hear us. He takes his his vacuum and he places it down and we begin to pray for him. And as we lay our hands on him to pray for him, the strangest thing happens. He gets down on the floor on his knees. He lifts out his hands and tears begin to fall down his face. Now, I didn't know what was happening in that moment, but God was clearly doing something. After we finished praying for him, he got up and told us they had recently moved here, I think from the Middle East. And during this time, he, he expressed to his wife that very morning that he felt distant from God. And so he told his wife that he was going to begin to pray and fast until God did something in his life. So that evening, God sent two tired friends with very little faith into a room to pray for him and be his answer to prayer. Now, this is something that doesn't happen to me every day. But when it does, it's spectacular. It, it's so incredible to be a part of something that the Spirit just explodes as an answer of prayer. But to be honest with you guys, most of my experience of prayer feels as if God doesn't answer my prayer. Most of my experience in prayer is an experience of unanswered prayer. See, it, it feels as if God doesn't hear my prayer. It feels as if I am praying to an empty room. See, I often lack the kind of experience of answered prayer that we experienced that evening. And I bet that many of us in this room can relate. Many of us have experienced unanswered prayer. And my bet is that often your best and most desperate prayers have remained unanswered. See, our most sincere cries for help to God seem to echo out into an eternal void, leaving us to wonder if God even answers prayer. And let's be honest, because of this, many of us simply do not pray. Because, And I think if we thought that our prayers made any difference at all, we would pray. But we feel as if our prayers make no difference in what God does or does not do. And I do not blame you. I get it. This is my experience too. So the question that I have for us this morning is, what do we do with unanswered prayer? What do we do when heaven remains silent? 
What do we do when there is no answer? There is no movement in the heavenlies. What do we do when our prayers go unanswered? You know, many of us in this room are wondering, why did God let that happen? Where was God in my moment of need? How come God hasn't answered me? Why did they get sick? Why am I still lonely and single? Where was God when I expected him to show up in answered prayer? And the question behind the question is, how are we ever supposed to trust a God who does not answer prayer? And yet, some people say, well, God is going to do what God is going to do. Well, then why pray? And, and others say, well, God can do anything. Well, then why doesn't he, right? Uh, the other night, I was um, down in Bellingham to visit two of our friends who live in Seattle with my wife, and we're having dinner. And they began to tell us stories of answered prayer. Okay, they're YWAMers, so they just have like loads of them, right? And so they start telling us stories of how like they're just in a grocery store and the spirit just like explodes into like miraculous movement. They're telling me uh, of these stories where they fasted and prayed while they were doing missions in the Middle East. And, and as they fasted and prayed, they got a phone call that something spectacular happened in Canada as the result of their prayer. They told me this one story when they were in Japan and there was somebody who was on the brink of death and they saved this guy's life because of a simple prayer. Now, I left that dinner thinking, wow, those are incredible stories. But I also left wondering, how come I don't have those kinds of stories? How come my life isn't filled with, with a plethora of answered prayer? Why does prayer not work like that in my life? And maybe that's the question that you're wondering this morning. How come I don't have uh, stories of answered prayer? How come I don't have experiences of the heavens opening up and the voice of God booming from the skies? Where are the answers to my prayers? See, maybe you're not like that. Maybe you actually don't dare voice your doubts. Instead, you shove them deep inside of you so that they never see the light of day. And you've convinced yourself and everyone around you. But inside, you are filled with doubt. See, is following Jesus really about absolute certainty? And if it is a life without doubt, then what do we do with Jesus himself? See, Jesus experienced unanswered prayer. Yet Jesus experienced unanswered prayer. The Son of God, the Eternal One, the Creator of the universe, experiences at least three times in the Gospels unanswered prayer. The, the first time that Jesus experiences unanswered prayer is in the Gospel of John chapter 17. And he prays to the Father and he's praying for the church, the, the followers of Jesus. And he prays and asks that they might be brought to, quote, complete unity. Now, has that happened? Is the church un united? It, it, has that happened? No, we, the, the church in many ways remains divided. See, his, his, his prayer for complete unity for the church remains unanswered. Now, second, the second example of unanswered prayer in the life of Jesus comes from on the cross. Jesus feels absolutely abandoned by his father. He feels distant and, 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 and separated from his father. And in that moment, he cries out, Abba, Father. Or he, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the heavens remain unsilent. He gets no answer. That prayer remains unanswered. Now, the third and greatest example of unanswered prayer comes from our passage this morning, Mark chapter 14. So on his night, the night of his, his arrest, Jesus goes to a garden and he prays these words, Father, take this cup from me. He prays to his father because he doesn't want to go through with his death. He doesn't want to go to the cross. And the father says no. The father says no to the son. Now think about this. Think about the reality of this. Jesus sits right now at the right hand of the father. 
carrying the pain of unanswered prayer. Jesus understands what it's like to pray out and receive a no. He knows what it's like to hang on the cross feeling absolutely abandoned by his father and cry, God, where are you? And hear nothing from the heavens. He, he understands what it's like because he's been there. So in Mark chapter 14, in our passage this morning, Jesus is about to go to the cross. And, and he's on his way to die for the sins of humanity on the cross. He's about to be handed over to the Romans and to be crucified brutally by them. And he knows what's ahead of him. And so on his way, he stops in a garden and he wrestles with doubt. And in his doubt, he prays in, in verse 36, Abba, Father, take this cup from me. Here's what it says, verse 32. When they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. Verse 35, going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So what do we learn in this moment? What do we learn from Jesus about unanswered prayer? Well, first, we, we, we notice first that Jesus starts by praying, Abba, Father. See, in a moment of doubt and despair, in a moment of agony and doubt, he prays to the Father and calls him Abba. He calls him Father. What Jesus is doing here is he's choosing to see God as his Father. Why does he do this? Why is this the place that Jesus starts? Now, in April, I'm going to become a dad for the first time. I'm really excited. Um, very excited. Um, and I already love that child so much. I don't, I don't even know what its gender is. I don't know their name yet. I don't know all the details. I don't even know what they look like, but I'm already filled with so much love and compassion for that child. But I can't imagine what it'll be like and how my love will change for them as I hold that baby in, their, in my hands and name them for the first time and see them. I, I can't imagine how much my love will grow for them. There's nothing that I wouldn't do for that child. This is what it means to be a father. And Jesus, in his darkest moment, chooses to see that this is what God is. He is father. He is a God of love. He is a father who would do anything for his children. And Jesus seems to believe that in his darkest moment, there still remains at the center of the universe a God of love. A father who loves his kids and would go to any lengths for them. Jesus knows his father. He knows his character. He knows his heart. And he chooses to believe that this is who God is. And though he fears the road ahead, though he's uncertain about what it will cost him, though, though he's, he's tempted to, to walk away and choose an alternative option, in the face of all of that, he still chooses to trust that God is a father and he is a loving father. He gazes at the central reality of the universe, that God is a loving father. See, in another place, Jesus taught his disciples to pray this way, ask, seek, and knock until the door opens. That the language there is actually go on seeking, go on asking, go on knocking until that door opens. And he goes on to say a verse after that, he says, if you then, though you are evil, the, the, the meaning there is, though you are imperfect fathers, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? See, Jesus believes that the center of the center of reality is a God of love. He believes that that God is a good father who longs to give good gifts to his children. See, in his agony and in his despair, in his darkest moment, he chooses to believe that behind the cross, behind everything, is a God of love that he calls father. 
What this means for us is our prayers might be unanswered. What this means for us is we might be going through the darkest valley. We might be going through the toughest moments of our life, but we need to, like Jesus, choose to trust that God is a good father. He is a God of love and he cares for his children. But second, Jesus prays, everything is possible for you. It's as if Jesus, in addition to believing that God is father, he believes that God is a sovereign God, a God who can do something about his situation. See, he's not praying to a God with his hands tied behind his back and his face turned away from his situation. He is praying to a sovereign God who is close and near and compassionate and able to do something about his situation. So he prays to that father, everything is possible for you. You know, we often do the opposite, don't we? We, we lower our expectations. We, we seem to think, I'm not going to hope that God can do that. I'm just going to lower my expectations. See, what we're doing here is we're trying to protect ourselves from the letdown of unanswered prayer. We think that we're praying to a God who can't really do anything about our situation. So we lower our expectations. We think God can't do anything, or, or if he can, maybe he just doesn't want to. And so while we may pray, we are not really sure if all things are possible for our God. But Jesus doesn't do this. He doesn't lower his expectations, but rather he clings to the Father's ability. He clings to the Father's ability to do something about a situation because this is the character of his Abba Father. He chooses to trust that God is able. And so he prays, everything is possible for you. But third, Jesus prays right here, five of the most surprising words found in the New Testament. He asks God for an alternative to the cross. Do you realize how provocative this is? Do you realize how shocking it is that the one who would die for the sins of humanity is looking for an alternative from the cross? And he prays these five words, take this cup from me. Take it from me, God. Show me another way. Uh, so last year I was on a camping trip with the guys. I know that I don't look like a camper and that's because I'm not. Um, but uh, my wife's uh, family, all the guys go on this camping trip every year. And the main thing that we do is we do off-roading, okay? So obviously I'm not an off-roader, but I'm down for it, okay? I'm just like, this is a great experience. This is a great bonding moment, you know? And so it was all fun and games. Like we, we got these like Jeeps and off-roading vehicles and ATVs, and it's all fun and games until I'm going down a mountain and this giant rock flings up into my wheel well and cuts my brake line, okay? All the fluid is gone. I'm on top of like this steep mountain, okay? If you're an off-roader, it's the Whipsaw Trail. I'm on this, this steep mountain and, and I'm not even close to the bottom yet. And so my father-in-law grabs a bottle of water. He puts it into my brake line and looks me dead in the eye and says, don't worry, just don't use your brakes. And I'm like, I'm not an expert. I am not an expert. But going down a steep mountain in descent without brakes just doesn't seem like a good idea. And so I, I have to go down this mountain and guys, I was terrified, absolutely terrified, okay? Um, and I didn't want to do this at all. And I think this is exactly how Jesus feels. Jesus feels this way in the moment. He is face to face with his death. He is face to face with taking on the sin of humanity and all the weight of it. And he doesn't want to do it. He's terrified. And in his humanity, he prays to his father, take this cup from me. Take this cup from me, father. See, this is Jesus at his most vulnerable and the crazy thing about this passage is Jesus seems to be off script and praying unbiblically. Jesus goes against his own advice to his disciples. We read that on, on one occasion, Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. 
So he said to him, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is Jesus' model for his disciples on how to pray. And Jesus here is taking the same pattern as the Lord's Prayer. He is taking the same pattern of prayer that, he's, that he taught his disciples. And, and what happens is in the first and second lines, it'll just be right behind me, they're almost identical. In the, the Lord's Prayer, he says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. But in this prayer, he says, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. But Jesus seems to go off script on the third line. He swaps your will be done with the exact opposite. Take this cup from me. Jesus knows that the coming kingdom will only be established by drinking the cup of death and suffering, and he simply doesn't want to go through with it. The contrast between what he's meant to pray and what he actually prays is startling. It almost seems unbiblical, and it leaves us wondering, can he actually pray like this? Is this appropriate way for us to pray? I imagine an audible gasp in the heavens. I imagine the father tearing up as he looks at his son struggling with doubt. And what we see is a frail Jesus going to the cross and saying, in effect, Abba, Father, I am scared. Help me. I don't want to do this. This is what the almighty, all-powerful God of the universe looks like. He looks like a son crying out to his father in the garden, saying, God, I am scared. Help me. I don't know if I want to go with this. See, what we learn in this third phrase of the prayer of Jesus is that he's honest. He is honest on how he feels. See, we learn that it's better to pray an honest prayer than a correct prayer. See, in this moment, Jesus isn't concerned with saying the right words. It's not about formula. It's not about oppressing the Father with the correct doctrine and theology. It's about being honest to his Father about how he actually feels about the situations. See, if you actually read the prayer book of the Bible, the Psalms, you will actually find some gnarly Psalms in there that seem unbiblical, and, and they go against what we would think that they should say, but they're honest. This one Psalm that I read the other day was like, God, kill my enemies, kill their children and their grandchildren, send them to hell and give them no mercy. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is in the Bible, right? Like, like, let me ask you this. Is this biblical? Is this loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you? Of course it isn't. And we shouldn't expect it to be because this prayer isn't concerned with correct theology as it is with honesty. That's what prayer is. It's coming to God saying, God, I know I shouldn't feel this way. I know that this is the way that things ought to be, but this is how I feel. And we got to have a theology that God is big enough to take our honesty. See, he prays, Abba, Father, I can't do this. Is there another way? And you know, some people attempt to put on a brave face when they're in the face of opposition and when they suffer. And I get it. They pretend that everything is fine and perfect when it's not. And they say things that they think that God wants them to say, because this is a way that we can force God into obeying us or, or forcing God's hand. But Pete Gregg on this passage writes that, quote, it is hard to overstate the extent to which these five words have given permission to people to pray imperfectly, honestly, and even improperly at times of tribulation. See, by praying Abba Father, Jesus believes that his God is a father of love. By praying everything is possible for you, Jesus chose to believe that he could be, uh, that, that God has the power to do something about a situation. But by praying, take this cup from me, Jesus has the audacity to believe that he could be honest with his God. See, in prayer, Jesus seems to think that the one he's praying to is an all-powerful, all-loving God that he calls Father. And the one thing that he can do with him 
is be honest. So is this who our God truly is? Jesus seems to believe that his God is an all-loving, all-powerful God that he can be honest with. But do we believe that this is who our God is? And if he is this God, then why do so much uh, of our prayers remain unanswered? If if this is really who God is, an all-powerful, all-loving God who who we can be honest with, then why is there so much evil and suffering? Why does sin still, still seem to reign in our day? Why do we deal with unanswered prayer? Why is there evil and suffering? Is God to blame? I'm going to say three things on this. Is God to blame? Well, first, let me say this. God did not create evil. He didn't. This is not part of God's creation. Sin, sickness, and death are not part of God's good world. These are intruders into God's creation. See, evil is the distortion of God's world. In fact, what we read in Genesis 1 and 2 is a God who creates his world and seven times he speaks over it, a word of blessing. It is good. Triumphantly in the last time he said, it is very good. So what does God think of the world that he created? It is good. It is good seven times over and he climaxes and says, it is very good. This is the world in which God creates, a good world. God did not create evil. But second, some seem to think that everything that happens in this world is God's will. They claim that this is what it means for God to be sovereign. And we do believe, like Jesus, that all things are possible for him and that he is a sovereign God. But the Bible depicts a very different idea of a sovereign God. See, not everything that happens in this world is God's will. This is why Jesus prayed and taught his disciples to pray, Father, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What Jesus is doing is he's assuming that God's will isn't always done on earth as it is in heaven. See, God gave free will to those he created, and this freedom can be used to resist God's will. It can be used to, to take of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It can be taken to, to walk away from God and to resist him and, and, and to uh, deny him. See, there are other wills at play in the world. There's God's will. There's, there's my will. There's the wills of others. And there are the wills of spiritual beings, which leads me to my third point. The world is literally caught up in a war between God and Satan. Now, this is really weird for, for us to say in 2023. I get it, right? We're, we're enlightened. We don't believe in that like mythical nonsense. I get it. But the scriptures reveal this reality just by a brief reading of the Old and New Testament. For example, the apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, and says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Or John, the, the, the disciple says that Jesus came to, quote, destroy the works of the devil. Peter later summarizes Jesus' ministry by saying that he went around healing the sick who were, quote, oppressed by the devil. See, the Bible tells a story of a cosmic battle between God and Satan, but it tells us that Satan will lose that battle. Revelation 12, 12 says, therefore rejoice you heavens and you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and sea because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. The devil's will may be done on earth for now, but his time is short. He will be defeated once and for all. See, we we see this cosmic battle between God and Satan probably most clearly, specifically in prayer in Daniel chapter 10. In Daniel chapter 10, Daniel prays to God, and he prays a sincere, honest prayer to God for God to move, and nothing happens. For 21 days, Daniel does not give up praying. He prays. Some of you guys have done the fast. You know the deal, right? Um, But he prays for 21 days, prayer and fasting for God to move and nothing happens. And then all of a sudden this angel shows up and says, hey, I got held up in the heavens. Sorry, I'm late. Right? And you're like, what? What is happening here? Right? This is what it says in Daniel 10, 13. 
but the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. I'm like, who's the prince of Persia, right? Then Michael, one of the chief princes, okay, who's that, came to help me because I was detained there by the king of Persia. So apparently this angel comes and says, hey, God answered your prayer 21 days ago, but I was in this cosmic battle between me and this, this angel over the kingdom of Persia, and he detained me there for 21 days until Michael the archangel came and released me. And you're like, that is so weird. And I'm like, yes, it is. But the Bible is real that there is actually a realm behind the physical reality. There's actually a battle going on between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. This is the reality that we live in. And so what do we do with a story as crazy and as wild as this, right? So like Daniel, we need to understand that God isn't always the one pushing against our prayers. There are actual realities that can stop or resist our prayers. Daniel prayed and God answered, but there was a battle in the heavens for 21 days. And here's what you need to know. It may not be God who is letting you down. It may not be God who is letting you down. There is a spiritual battle going on. We live in a world where in part Satan's will is done, but it will not be for long. In the end, God will triumph over evil. See, some of our prayers aren't answered, not because God isn't good, and not because God isn't all-powerful, but they are resisted because God's will can be directly uh, contested by the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. And all of the biblical authors are completely honest about this. God is still sovereign. He is still loving. But let me summarize by saying this. God does not create evil. Not everything in this world is God's will. And number three, there is a battle between God and Satan. But on the cross, Jesus confronted the powers of darkness head on. He overcame them. And, and Paul writes in Colossians 2.15 and says that on the cross, Jesus, quote, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them on the cross. See, what this means is we live in between God's victory over sin on the cross and God's coming victory where he will remove sin once and for all. We live in between the cross and the coming kingdom. And as we do, we stand between these two realities and we look forward to God's coming kingdom when his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the question remains, does my prayer work? When I pray, does anything happen in the heavenlies? Does it make any difference at all? Or are we just praying into the darkness, hoping that it'll make some sort of difference? Now, as a pastor of this church and as a reader of scripture and, and a believer of Jesus Christ, I believe that prayer changes reality. I believe can, with, with great amount of conviction that prayer works. See, the Bible is filled with multiple stories of answered prayer. David, looking back over his life and seeing God's goodness, writes this in Psalm 18. He says, in my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears and he reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. David seems to think that God is a God who hears and answers prayers. There's a, there's a lady in the Old Testament named Hannah who was barren and longed for a child and she goes into the temple and she starts crying out to God in prayer and God answers her prayer by giving her a son. In Acts 12, Peter is imprisoned and the disciples start to pray and they have this prayer meeting in a house and when he shows up at the door, they don't even realize, they're like, our prayers actually released you from prison and they don't even believe it. In 2 Kings 19, God tells Hezekiah that he's going to die, right? That's probably not the prophetic word that I'm looking for right now, but uh, God shows up and says, hey, you're gonna die. And so he prays 
and God changes his mind and gives him 15 more years to live because he prayed. Prayer changes reality. And the Bible is open and honest and bold about that reality, that prayer actually works. See, most people believe that our prayers don't really change what God's going to do. They, They think this helps. God is going to do what God is going to do, whether we pray or not. But Jesus and the rest of the Bible seem to suggest that our prayers affect what God does and does not do. Dallas Willard, the great uh, philosopher, once said that God's response to our prayers is not a charade. He does not pretend that he is answering our prayer when he is only doing what he was going to do anyway. Our requests really do make a difference in what God does or does not do. See, when you pray, things happen. Prayer changes reality. They affect what God does and does not do. This is why the brother of Jesus, James himself, in James 4, 2 says, the reason why you do not have is because you do not ask. He's assuming there that there would actually be something that would happen if we prayed. Jesus himself said, ask and you'll be, it'll be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Uh, I remember talking to Sam Storms and he says, we, we expect to receive from God apart from prayer, that which he only promises to give through prayer. We expect that God's just going to do something, but he's actually given us prayer because he will do it when we pray. How much more will the Father give the Spirit to those who ask? What this, what this actually teaches us is that things happen when we pray and things do not happen when we do not pray. The great Reformed Swiss theologian Karl Barth once said, God does not act the same way whether we pray or not. Prayer exerts an influence upon God's action. See, things happen when we pray and things do not happen when we do not pray. To see this better, let's take a look at one of the stories of Moses found in Exodus chapter 32. And and at this point in the the story, God has delivered the the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. He has brought them through the sea. He has led them into the wilderness and he has taken Moses up into a mountain where there's like fireworks and like lightning in the sky and it's terrifying. And, And God's up on the mountain with Moses, giving him the Ten Commandments. And the people all gather around Aaron and they think, okay, you know what we should do? Let's make an idol. Let's make a golden calf. And let's pretend like it took us out of slavery in Egypt. Does does this sound like a good idea? And so they start worshiping this golden calf. And God from the mountain looks down and he's ticked. He's like, what the heck, guys? I brought you out of Egypt and you're giving tribute to this golden calf, which you guys made like an hour ago. Are you kidding me? And God is about to go Old Testament on these guys or Acts 5 if if you're a New Testament guy. Okay, God is going to throw down on them. He is ticked. And it says in Exodus 32, 11, but Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that you brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger and relent. Do not bring disaster on your people. Verse 14, then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster that he threatened. The prayer of Moses seemed to change reality. This wasn't a charade for God. He actually answered the prayer of Moses, just like Hannah, just like David, just like Hezekiah, and just like uh, multitudes of others who have gone before us. Prayer, in this case, changed realities. It appears that, that Moses' prayer actually changed God's mind. His prayers rewrote history. It literally says that Moses prayed, and then verse 14, then the Lord relented. The prayer of Moses changed God's mind. What this teaches us is that your prayers matter. They change reality. We are, yes, caught up in a spiritual battle. Yes, we live in a world where God's will is not always done as it is in heaven. 
But this is not reason not to pray. This is the very reason why we pray. Because in prayer, we partner with God to see his will done on earth and his kingdom come to earth. In prayer, we come against the powers of darkness and sin. We come against the kingdom uh, and its principalities. In fact, Paul writes that the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. We prophetically need to hear this as the people of God. Our weapons are not the weapons our, our culture fights with. They're not political weapons. They're not weapons of hatred and violence. He says the weapons we fight with are not weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Our weapons do something that those weapons cannot do, a kingdom that they cannot establish on earth. Our, our weapons in prayer come against the kingdom of darkness and establish God's will and God's kingdom on earth. I don't care who's in office. I don't care what's happening in our world. Our weapon is much stronger. It's the weapon of prayer. This is the power that God has given us in prayer. And Jesus taught us to pray that his kingdom would come and his will would be established on earth as it is in heaven. We live in a world where God's will is not always done on earth. We live in a world of unanswered prayer. I get it. We live in a world of sin and darkness and pain. And we live right in between this reality of God's victory over sin on the cross and God's coming kingdom when he will establish his goodness and reign as king once and for all. So what this means for us is that when we pray, God, your will be done, this invites us into a different world. It invites us to stand with one foot firmly placed in this world as it is and another foot firmly placed in the world as it will be. And in prayer, we stand in this reality and we cry out to our Abba Father and say, your will be done. Your kingdom may be established on earth. See, in prayer, we dream of a better world, a world where God's will is done. The Anglican priest Wesley Hill writes that in prayer, we are taking our stand against the world as it is now. And we are asking for more and more of the world as it will be. See, when Jesus invites us into prayer, he invites us in a way that he assumes that our prayers, your prayers, change reality. God calls us to partner with him in such a way that things actually happen when we pray. Now, there's this passage in the book of Revelation where God is showing his people that he's actually storing up our prayers in a bowl. And he's storing those up over and over and over for millenniums. And God is storing up our prayers because one day he will pour them out on the earth and God's will will be done your prayers will be answered and it will be yes and amen. So my question for you this morning is, would you keep praying even if it took you a thousand times, but on the thousand and first, something broke in the heavens? Would you keep praying knowing that if you're persistent in prayer, that something actually happens, that, that you might not even see the answer, but would you be persistent in prayer knowing that your prayers actually come against the powers and principalities that be? You know, years ago when I was young, um, my dad used to work on these old cars and they'd start down out as these like on rust buckets. Like they, they didn't run. They didn't have tires on them. They were just rusty pieces of metal. That's all that they were. But over time, they soon enough became works of art. My dad would restore these old cars into credible hot rods. And, um, I wasn't interested. This didn't capture my attention. It didn't, it wasn't something that I wanted anything to do with. And I remember um, in the summer, I would leave on a Saturday morning and I would just go out skateboarding all day in the sun. And my dad would just be there working on his car. 
And I would roll into the driveway and there was my dad just working on that car all day. When I'd roll in, my dad would ask me if I would do something small to help him. If I'd hold a light or pass him a wrench or oil something for him or do something. And I would for a little while, maybe a few minutes, but I wasn't very interested. So I would kind of wander off. And at the time, I thought that my dad just wanted me to do a chore. I thought it was about doing the task, holding the wrench, holding the light, doing the thing. But all these years later, I understand it was never about the chore. It was never about the wrench or the light or any of it. My dad waited. All day, my dad would sit there working on his car and he would wait. I don't know how many times he probably looked down that driveway waiting for me to come home but I didn't get it, but he waited, he waited for me. And as an adult, I realized I missed it. This is the heart of our father. He waits for us. And many of us think that it's a chore. We think it's about the prayer, but it's actually about a God who waits for us, a God who actually wants to partner with us to restore the world. Our God is a good father waiting for us. And some of us, I wonder that in the end, will we look back on our lives and think, I missed it. I thought it was about the, the chore of prayer. I thought it was about, you know, something that my, my father wanted me to do. But all the while, the father was looking down the driveway, just waiting for you. He was waiting for you just to come home and pray with him because there is a God standing at that driveway, just waiting for you to partner with him, to dream of a better world, to establish his kingdom on earth, to push back the darkness and see his kingdom established on earth. Our father is a good father. He is the Abba father that Jesus prays to in the garden, a God of love, but he is a God who can do something about our situation. So will we dare to be honest with that God in prayer? And will we dare to believe that our prayers change reality as we partner with God to establish a better world right in the middle of this old one? Would you guys stand with me?